0: Talking history. On News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and work of an artist who was thought by some to be a madman, a barbarian and a sociopath, the French post-impressionist artist Cézanne. And we'll be finding out how he changed the way we see the world. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106, that costs 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we discussed how women, lives loves and dreams have been reshaped since 1950 the year walt Disney's cinderella came out and we also found out about how an impoverished idealistic youth from the provinces of czarist russia was transformed into the cunning and fearsome outlaw stalin and more besides last week in our monthly book show and if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts Tonight's debate is on Paul Cézanne. Born in France in 1839, Cézanne has been described as a painter tormented by self-doubt who always remained an outsider in society as well as the art world. Cézanne believed that to paint from nature is not to copy an object, it is to represent its sensations. But although he was not always accepted in his own lifetime, he is now viewed as a cultural icon and a visionary. Ernest Hemingway claimed that Cézanne's art influenced his writing style and his use of short, simple sentences. And in the 20th century, Cézanne shaped many artists, including Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse, who called him the father of us all. Cézanne died of pneumonia in 1906, and in tonight's show, we want to look at his work and his remarkable legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr Yorella Andrews is Reader and Director of Research in the Department of Visual Cultures at Goldsmiths University of London and is the author of This is Cezanne. Dr. Fabienne Rupin is an expert on 19th century French art whose PhD was on Cezanne and whose books include Reconstructing Cezanne, Sequence and Process in Paul Cezanne's Works on Paper, as well as The Hidden Cezanne from Sketchbook to Canvas. Marco Kelly is the head of painting at the National College of Art and Design, NCAD, and is also a member of the Arts Council. Well, you're all very welcome, and later in the show, I'll be talking to Sarah Herring, Associate Curator at the National Gallery in London and the author of the book The 19th Century French Paintings. But Mark, we might begin with you and first to say welcome back because in the last 18 months we have only had two people in the studio live with us and uh, you are one of them and in fact uh, this is your second time back because we had you in the studio in July for our show on Rembrandt last year when we thought that things were coming back to normal and that it wouldn't be long before uh, we'd have normal full panels in studio and now a year on uh, here you are again for Cezanne but a very different artist and perhaps a a more difficult artist to discuss, and uh, I know that today is Father's Day, and your daughter uh, made you a beautiful Cezanne uh, card for uh, the day. And unfortunately, because it's radio, it's a tougher uh, it's it's tougher to describe an artist. If this was a composer, we'd be starting with a piece of music. We'd have pieces of music going to the ad break. For someone like Cézanne, who's a, a difficult one to describe, how would you capture him for our listeners? Great. It's great to be back. Thanks,
1: Patrick. And yeah, it's an interesting artist to talk about this year as composed to, I suppose, compared to Rembrandt last year. Rembrandt were all the shadows and maybe coming into the light and thinking again about landscape and and the countryside and and a, a, more, a greater awareness of the environment around us. Probably maybe Cézanne is right for this moment in some way. Um. Interesting about Cézanne as well, this difficulty of speaking about Cézanne, because Cézanne also uh, takes a position in which he feels that theory should follow painting. Theor- work should come first and theorising can come later. So that's, I think, a very important principle in Cézanne, that he directs people back to nature all the time. Nature being um, an enigmatic, if you like, um, thing that he's pursuing really through his study and observation of the, the, la- the landscape. A painting which I think uh, really is a very good example of the achievement of Cézanne, is the painting Mont Saint Victor um, uh, uh, um, with the viaduct of the uh, the Marseille Axe uh, River line in the in the of uh, the arc the, the 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 arc valley. And this painting um, is from Matisse's mature period, and I think uh, it's beyond impressionism, and really is the kind of the beginning of the way in which he works which uh, takes greater emphasis away from the momentary effects of light and shadow and really begins to conceive of the pictorial plane as a series of kind of impulses which can be corrected, alternated and, um, if you like, kind of embody and compress time in the work. So I think this is an interesting painting. And I, in fact, the, 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 the composition itself um, resembles a grid. It's almost bisected, almost in the centre by the viaduct. And a tree at the centre of the composition produces an interesting, almost Mondrian-like intersection at this moment. So in this painting, we also can see how, in many ways, not only does it refer to maybe, I suppose, a land, landscape painting after Nicolas Poussin in the 17th century, but it also points forward much more to things that, that happen after Cézanne's death. Uh, uh, in terms of um, cubism and later on, I suppose, non-objective abstraction also as well.
0: Yeah, I've Googled the painting and I have the picture here and listeners, whether listening live or, or on the podcast, will be able to to search for it as well. OK, I'm looking at it. Our listeners will be looking at it. What is so special about this painting and what what makes Cézanne transformational as an artist? I've read that he's a visionary. I've read the way he influenced Hemingway. I've read that people like Picasso and Matisse uh, claim such a debt and that he he changed the art world. But I'm looking at this and it seems beautiful. There's the viaduct, there's the river valley, there's the trees, but what makes it transformational?
1: In Cézanne's work, the the, the, the the overall or the universal um uh, assemblage of the painting in its total form across the surface is what makes it unique. It isn't uh, topographically or idiomatically um, necessarily faithful to uh, like a photographic reading of the work. What Cezanne does in this work is he reconstructs, he constructs, he reconstructs um, nature um, after observation. And um, the work itself, what it does is it represents a shift away from a mimetic understanding of the space in front of us and something else which is more haptic in which, if you like, the viewer actively contributes in terms of uh, prolonged retinal obs- observation and absorption in the piece, the piece begins to open up in front of uh, the viewer. Um, some, uh, the philosopher Heidegger writes about this in terms of the theory of something which he calls the or iss or the stroke. And what Heidegger talks about here is the reese or the stroke referring to a gulf that is opened up, uh, but also within this stroke, uh, it holds together the opposite edges of it. So the trait of Beca- the trait of um, of Cezanne, if you like, the, the 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 concept of the singular gesture in which he 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 replaces something that that, that exists beneath it and opens up an infinite uh, series of possibilities in terms of what he talks: the relationship between the cylinder, the sphere, and the cone produce a new grammatology of the picture surface um, that um, is much more dependent on the participatory retinal involvement of the viewer.
0: Yoralla, when we talk about Cézanne in terms of, say, the history of French art or even the history of world art, how important an artist is he?
2: Yes, that's a, a really good question. I think a lot of it depends on how we're thinking about art and art history in the kinds of histories of modernity that have come to the surface. I think he is an incredibly important artist for many of the reasons that Mark has already identified. And that's something I think that I'd very much like to pick up on. I think what's really important about Cezanne isn't just the kinds of mark-making, the kinds of images that he produced. I think he wasn't so much a model for other artists on the basis of what his paintings necessarily looked like or in terms of their subject matter, but very much for the way in which they were taking his viewers on this extraordinary visual adventure, this visual challenge, where they were really having to almost have a sense of their own modes of seeing being undone, almost having to sort of start from scratch. I think that's one of the reasons as well, why Suzanne is of such interest, not only to painters, to writers, but also to philosophers, particularly a lot of 20th century philosophers who are really trying to rethink the whole philosophical project as well. You know, what does it mean to think? You know, what, what, where are our foundations for thought? Where are our foundations for seeing? How do we see um, sort of beyond or beneath the, the the sort of man-made formulations that we've come up with? So, yes, I think he is a tremendously important artist. But at the time, I guess there was a, a point that I wanted to make to begin with, which is just to remind us all that, you know, we're quite used now to the work of Suzanne, But the strangeness of his work during the later part of the 19th century, along with the strangeness of Impressionism as well. When we think about the fact that these were just a tiny handful of artists and the art of the day, the contemporary art of the day was academic art. It was classicism. And, you know, the Damien Hirst of the day, if you like, were artists like um, Louis Messonnier, or Alexandre Carbonell, people like that, who we've probably not even heard of today. They were the people that were selling work internationally. They were the stars. So, yes, it's very much a, a sort of 20th century story, really, which really positions Suzanne in this really important place.
0: And Urella, sometimes when we do a show on a on an artist or a composer, we don't really talk about their life. We just talk about the work because sometimes the the life of the artist or the composer isn't particularly interesting. But we could actually do the entire show just talking about Cezanne, the person, because it is such a... A fascinating life in itself. Uh, school friends with Emile Zola, you know, suffering from self doubt, never really, s- or certainly taking a long time to be accepted, uh, suffering a lot of rejection and being seen as an outsider and being seen as difficult and m- seen as mad by some and, and a sociopath. That, that it, it, it certainly wasn't a straightforward, simple life.
2: No, it wasn't. I mean, I have to say that, you know, he falls very nicely into the myth of the tormented artist. And I think a lot of that was very fabricated as well, partly by him. So, yes, I think he genuinely did suffer from a lot of self-doubt. He had real kind of ambitions, I think, in terms of what he wanted to achieve. And there's a lovely... um, piece of writing uh, Rilke I think put it incredibly well when he talked about the fact that there was this incredible struggle that Suzanne often had between what he was seeing and there's a lot of um, reference and a lot of discussions of his work how he was looking for the motif he was looking for he was he was looking for that moment if you like where an act of looking at the world becomes an act of becoming a kind of recipient, if you like, of vision. So there's a kind of turnaround, a transformation that happens where you're no longer in control of the visual experience. And there's something about that, that I think really informed the difficulties that he was dealing with. But in terms of, you know, this (laughs) your references to him being a kind of mad sociopath. Well, I think he probably was a thoroughly unpleasant and difficult person to deal with a lot of the time and i think some of that was fabricated by him um i think some of that he, he really wanted to make his mark and that was one of the ways in which he tried to do that but on the other side actually he didn't do all that badly you know during the last 11 or so years of his life he had a number of very, very important exhibitions. He was an artist who actually did obtain fame and and recognition during his lifetime. And there were a lot of people running around, I would say, you know, sorting things out for him and writing about him, being interested in him. Um, The the gallerist Vollard, who really turned things around very much. And I mean, that was a, a real kind of, Act of self sacrifice in some ways, although he, of course, saw the, the kind of financial rewards in doing that, too. So I think there's also a sense in which it's quite easy to look at Suzanne through a particular myth. And I don't think the reality is quite that.
0: So we perhaps might go back to the works rather than the uh, the, the, than the life. And Joralla, uh, I mentioned his influence on Ernest Hemingway. He also had an influence on, on the Irish writer Samuel Beckett. And Beckett had this passion for paintings. And when he encountered Cézanne's work in London, it had this huge impact on him. And I'm reading from the Irish Times here, a piece they did in 2006, where they say that Cézanne enabled him to see painting in a way that he had not before, like it really is this incredible legacy that he had on on writers, on on other artists, on on on, on poets that uh, is really quite extraordinary.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, if I may, there's a lovely bit from uh, Rilke writing in 1907 to his wife Clara, and he 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 has produced a whole series of letters based on going time and time again to the 1907 show at the Salon d'Automne, that was the, the show um, celebrating Cézanne's work the year after he died. And, and one of the things um, he writes is this, he says, when I remember the puzzlement and insecurity of one's first confrontation with Cézanne's work, along with his name, which was just as new, and then for a long time nothing and suddenly one has the right eyes. So it's that real sense of, you know, vision being adjusted. And for me, it's, it's really fascinating thinking about these sort of first encounters with this work when it really was unfamiliar, because I think we, we, we forget as well that, you know, people didn't have the same amount of visual culture around them that we do. And I'm incredibly moved always when I look at the way in which people from that period, the way that they look and think and really give paintings an extraordinary amount of time to unfold and the incredible detail with which they're able to see and notice the practice and sort of almost follow in the artist's Hand steps, if that's a word, um, you know, and the, the, the vigilance and the care and the shock and the nuance that's in their vision, which I have to say puts me to shame.
0: No, not at all. Uh, uh, Fabienne, uh, Mark there was talking about uh, uh, the, the, the viaduct at, at Mont-Saint-Victoire and I know you've done work on, on, on those paintings. I think there was a whole series of paintings that he, that he did based around uh, Mont-Saint-Victoire and, and you get a really interesting insight into his approach to, to painting on, with oils and to, to his whole approach with composition.
3: Uh, Yes, exactly. So that's what I was mainly interested in in my research is to understand what he was actually doing. So there's like hundreds of books of Cezanne. So if you would go to a library, you can basically spend your whole afternoon in there trying to even... Get an overview of how much he would have to read in order to see what what has already been written on that very famous artist, indeed. But we still do know very little about what he was actually doing when he was in front of those motives, when he was tackling his canvas or his uh, sheet of paper. And so I was trying to get a sense of approaching him in a material way to look closely at what he was doing, what he would have in his hands, what material he was working with. And one source that can tell us a lot about this is the paper itself. So it's a paper support, as he would often tear large sheets of paper in two and then work on like a standard size that he apparently felt handy to work on. And if you look closely at those half sheets, some of them have like very characteristic torn edges. And so in some cases, it is actually possible to reunite those fragmented larger sheets and then you would get another sense of what works have been executed very closely after each other
0: and when you look at his creative technique and his style how would you describe that and how original an artist would you say he was
3: so that depends a lot on his different mediums. He did like one third of his work in oil paint, then there are two thirds of his work that are executed on paper. There is again about half of them or a third maybe in watercolor and the other two thirds in graphite on paper. And each of those mediums obviously requires a different technique and a different approach. but. What many scholars have already observed about Cézanne is that he would not really be that experimental in his choice of mediums, such as, for example, Degas would combine lots of different paints and um, experiment with fixative and so forth. Cézanne would not do that. He would stick to oil paint, watercolor, and graphite, but he would make use of them in a very idiosyncratic way. So, for example, when you look at his watercolors, there are those multi-layered incredibly complex incredibly challenging works that completely mesmerize you when you're in front of them because you lose track of orientation he plays with a compression of background and foreground and makes you really get lost in those layers of paint although they are translucent and therefore also make you understand how many layers there were so they actually make you follow his steps of process and therefore kind of yeah, they, they they provide you a sense of how he would be in front of that Montagne Saint-Victoire and take on his brush and lay it down again, pick it up later for a different pigment. And then you would also see in the different corners how he would um, attach those sheets of paper several times to um, his, his easel, for example. So you would have sometimes up to 20 different pinholes, tack holes in those corners that would tell you how he would take it down take it up again, um, approach the subject again, and maybe we don't know how many minutes, hours, days later. But so those those traces of material process can actually be very telling and add like a whole other facet, maybe if you want to, um, next to those legends that we have about his yeah, mythological almost existence or biography.
0: And Mark, that's one thing about Cézanne, you, you have to look at the pieces many times, you know, it requires, it requires multiple views to really take it all in.
1: That's absolutely true. Um, I suppose um, if we take the series of paintings of Mont Saint victor I think there must be up to about maybe 60 paintings of these. Uh, and they c- cover quite a span in terms of the the period of um, of his work. And in them, we actually see the emergence of a different approach, different techniques at different points, moving from an impressionist approach to a post-impressionist approach. And then finally, in the uh, late 1880s and into um you know, uh, you know the the later years of the of, of that period in a painting like, um you know, the Chateau Noir. uh We see an increasingly dark and uh, a greater accumulated surface, and of course, the card players as well is another painting in which very very precise construction uh, allows us to understand really a painting which is a really a compressed series of moments and times and. So much so that the perspectives and the orientation of the painting is very uh, discontinuous, interrupted, fragmented, broken up, um, needing to be reconstructed in terms of looking and persistent looking. And uh, and all of that activity, I think, um, really for the first time begins to put the viewer into the position, if you like, that the subject shifts in modern art. Where the viewer is required for the completion of the work, the the work has a is inconclusive, uh, unfinished, and, and very open ended, in terms of the relationships between the foreground, middle grounds, and backgrounds, but also the implied moments and gestures in the hands of the card players. And this idea of the cards being played on the table, Suzanne was the first artist to kind of uh, think about uh, a concept which which he, which he describes himself as flat depth. And in the card players, we can't help but think of the cards as they accumulate on the table, being in some way analogous to the sequence of alterations and replacement of one, if you like, stroke of paint with another in what's termed uh, Cézanne's constructive stroke. If you like, Cézanne allows us a competing uh, focus of interest on the picture surface, this kind of flat depth. And this is really the achievement that happens over the time, a much more concentrated uh, form of looking. For the French philosopher Jacques Derrida Uh, In his 1978 book called The Truth in Painting, the title is taken uh, from um, from a quote by Cézanne when he writes to uh, Émile Bernard. In this quote, uh, Cézanne says to Émile Bernard, I owe you the truth in painting and I will tell it to you. And for the first chapter of that book, uh, which is called Passé Partout by Jacques Derrida, He uses this quote, he examines very carefully what is meant or what is implied by this idea of the truth in painting and then this idea of the telling it to you. Um, And just in summary, what Derrida begins to conclude is that uh, that, uh, he makes an analogy between Cézanne's painting and, if you like, the act of active speaking. So this kind of painting, the verb to paint and painting being a kind of performance It's really the consideration that Jack Derrida brings to what is distinct and unique in the work of of, of Cézanne. And in that performativeness, I suppose, we understand the modern truth of painting, which is to do with this flat depth and this providing a field in which uh, the painter um, begins to perform painting like an act of speech. And so in contemplation of uh, Cézanne's work, whether it is the, if you like, the universal geometry, the almost quantum science that's implied by the endlessly suspended And almost toppling, if you like, apples and oranges and bowls and tables and cloths, or whether it is, in fact, the landscape acts in all instances. Something is happening here in which which is deconstructive. Um, And so I think this idea of the construct and the deconstructive is what I would understand by the achievement of Suzanne in terms of the neo-impressionistic.
0: Very good. Well, we're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Sarah Herring of the National Gallery in London about uh, Cézanne, his impact and especially the French post impressionists So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history. History On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and work of the artist Cézanne. And I'm delighted to be joined on the phone by Sarah Herring, Associate Curator at the National Gallery in London. And she's the author of the 19th Century French Paintings. Uh, Sarah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Can I begin by asking about how significant an artist is Cézanne in the history of French art? How would you place his contribution?
4: Um, well, Cézanne was. A very important artist and very influential on modern art, um, the development of modern art in the 20th century. And it was for a number of reasons. And one of the most important um, reasons is his attitude to color and the way that he applied and handled it. He, He liked to convey modeling through color, through gradations of color, which he referred to as modulations. And in a letter um, to fellow artist Emil Bernard in 1904, he wrote that to read nature is to see it as if through a veil, in terms of the interpretation and patterns of colour which follow each other according to a law of harmony. And I think the second very important um, aspect of Cézanne's art is um, his multiple viewpoints in his paintings, and. At the end of his life, he describes in a letter to his son, sitting on a riverbank where he can see all the motifs around him, and the motifs multiply as he sees them from different angles as he moves his eyes from left to right, and that resulted in his canvases on multiple viewpoints, which of course led to a completely new way of um, depicting the um, the world in in the 20th century, and sometimes. Um, the way that he viewed nature resulted in distortions in, in his drawing. And the art historian Gomerich said the painter's indifference to correct drawing would start a landslide in art.
0: Very interesting. And in terms of this landslide in art, was he challenging the conventional values of French painting and French art in the 19th century?
4: And to some extent he was. Um, I think he was very much an independent um didn't have um, any time for academic training. I mean, he did intend some life drawing classes, but he was very much anti-establishment. He did send his pictures to the Salon because he wanted to shock, but in fact, they were generally rejected. Um, But of course, he was friends with a number of the Impressionist paintings, notably Pissarro with whom he worked. So in some respects, his work comes out of um, Impressionism at the end of the 19th century.
0: And talk to me about the collection there that you have in the National Gallery of London and your permanent collection. What works by Cézanne do you have?
4: We have a good range of paintings that actually range from some of his earliest works painted in the 1860s, such as um, The Painter's Father, Louis Auguste Cézanne, which was painted in about 1865, which is um, a portrait of his father, which was formed part of a decorative scheme at um, his manor house, the Jazz de Buffon. Um, we also have um stove in the studio, which also painted in around 1865. Um, there's a self-portrait that he painted when he was about 40 years old. And then we have some of the later landscapes um, from the 80s and the 90s. And, the, and then, of course, um, the collection culminates in Les Contes de Baigneurs, which was painted in around 1894 to 1905, which was one of the three great paintings on the theme of bathers,
0: and do you have a favourite piece amongst that collection
4: yes um, in fact one of my my, well my favourite piece is actually one of the earliest works for Stove in the studio which um, evokes the hardships of an artist's life um which was a not uncommon theme in 19th century Paris and it, it really to me it really is a um an evocation of the precarious life it's a very small painting it's painted in a very in in dark paint which is typical of his technique at the time um there's a, a propped up canvas against the wall and, and in front of it there's a stove and there's a pile of cold ash under the stove um and there's a there's, there's a cooking pot on the top so it's like the kind of the life of an artist, where they they cook and they live and they paint all in the same in the same studio. But what's also interesting about this painting that it was owned by his um, former friend, his childhood friend, the novelist Émile Zola, and Zola um, famously um, depicted um, an artist partly based on Cézanne, Claude Lantier, in his novel *Love* or his masterpiece, which was in 1886. And for a long time, it was thought that that novel actually um, precipitated a breakup in their friendship. But um, recently, a letter has been found from Cézanne to Zola, um, dating from November 1887, which refutes that. So I think it's it's an interesting work because of its references to the hardship of an artist's life, which Zola also references, and also the fact that Zola owned owned the painting.
0: Very good. And finally, Sarah, do you think that Paul Cézanne deserves his title as the father of modern art?
4: Well, to a number of modern artists, he was perceived as um, this father figure. In fact, Matisse said that um, Cézanne was father of us all and Picasso also called him um, the mother hovering hovering over. And of course, Cézanne was extremely important for artists such as Picasso and um, this new Art movement called Cubism, and it was it was Sudan's use of multiple viewpoints in his work, which had this huge influence on Cubism. Um, it, but there were other also there were other influences also um, on Cubism, such as African sculpture, um, which was extremely influential in Picasso's work. And um, in the late nineteenth century, as a result of um, colonialism, African sculpture arrived in Europe. In Paris, they were displayed in the Musée d'Ethnographie du Trocadéro in Paris. Um, They weren't considered as artworks in their own right, but their abstraction of of the human figure was also very important. So I think uh, um, Cézanne was one of a number of factors at this time.
0: Very good. Well, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. Uh, Sarah Herring. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, Sarah Herring, Associate Curator at the National Gallery in London, and a wonderful collection there uh, by all accounts. Sarah, thanks so much.
4: Thank you very
0: much. Thank we, you. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back with more on the life and work of Cézanne right after this break. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Uh, before the break there, I was talking to Sarah Herring of the National Gallery in London. And now I'm rejoined by my panelists, Dr. Urella Andrews from uh, Goldsmiths University of London. Dr. Fabienne Rupin, uh, an expert on 19th century French art. Mark O'Kelly from NCAD. And also delighted to be joined by Samantha Friedman, Associate Curator in the Department of Drawings and Prints at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and one of the organising creators of the wonderful exhibition Cézanne Drawing. Yorella, um, can we go back to some of the aspects of, of, of Cézanne's character and his life? It seems that he, because he was never really accepted, you know, your work, This is Cézanne, shows how he withdrew from Paris, seemed to withdraw from it. Why was there such a difficulty accepting his work?
2: Well, one of the difficulties, I think, was because of its its novelty. But if you don't mind, <laughs> I'd love to almost turn your question on its head, if that's OK, because one of the things that I, I do find so remarkable, and it was very funny trying to write about him and trying to kind of track his constant um, shifts from you know Paris, the centre of the art world, to Aix-en-Provence and that incredible relationship he had with the land. And I think something about his perhaps his retreat, his constant sort of retreat back. I think without wanting to sound romantic about it, I think there was something about him where there was such a profound connection to the landscape and to the earth and to to, to the physicality of that location right from his earliest childhood. he uh, He loved swimming. He, he, he loved walking in, in the hills. He knew that whole region inside out. And I think there's something about um, the difficulty of his project that had something to do with a kind of digging into this unknown territory. And, I mean, for me, the, one of the paintings that I love the most by him, which is uh, an, an earlier work that he, he did when he was quite young, and it's called bather and rocks. And it was originally painted onto the wall of his father's house. And it shows a naked bather with his back to us. And he's pressing his hands on these rocks as if he's almost trying to dig his way in. And so I think there's something about the way in which for Suzanne, there's a way in which um, modernity, if you like, his modernity didn't emerge in the city it emerged in the countryside. It, it emerged in in rural France as a result of going really, really deep into, I think, um, that relationship with the land, which is why later on artists like Smithson, Robert Smithson, the, the 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 land artist, was so interested in Suzanne's legacy for artists like him. So I know I didn't quite answer your question about his diff about why you know, why things didn't really take off for him, but I, th- I, I think it was something to do with his quest and how he was constantly being pulled away from Paris to this landscape, this earth, this place that had this real call in his life. And I think there's something really apt about that and really interesting about that for us today, I think
0: no it 's a fascinating answer so although he he claimed that Paris had defeated him it 's possible that he was just as happy to escape from Paris and that there was some some inexorable pull from the countryside
2: I think so I think um, it 's certainly the case that his work did start taking off once he he made a much more sort of definitive break. He did keep going back to Paris. But from about 1880, he was much more consistently located in um, the X region where he was doing a lot of work outdoors, um, either in the grounds of the Jadou Bouffin, the the, the country house belonging to his father, or as we heard earlier, you know, literally living out in in the hills where he rented in his later years little cottages, He, he, he rented a room in the château um, noir and he, he he basically embedded himself there and must have <laughs> must have really come across as being quite an oddity there as well he was an he was seen as a real odd bod in in X as well you know I don't think he really fitted in anywhere very easily
0: Mark it's interesting there Urella mentioned one of the the pictures of bathers and that's the theme that he went back on again and again and there were no dry robes in, in, in sight in those paintings and some of them were quite you know strange and the imagery was quite difficult and I think shocked quite a few people yeah,
1: they're extraordinary series of works. Again, persistent theme and, and these are studio painters. Early on in Suzanne's career he makes a distinction. Uh he says oh the best paintings are to be painted outdoors although it takes them a number of years to actually start doing that with Camille Pizarro but the Bader's paintings are studio paintings and they're classics in a way of the genre they set up the thing that I suppose that leads to paintings like Le Demoiselle d'Avignon and even further you could say this leads to the work of Jackson Pollock as well where form itself the geometry and the physiognomy of figures really have to give way to a more universal vision in which they correspond to the geometry of the painting surface and they're in correspondence with the rather phallic trees and 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 every aspect of the painting begins to take on a, a, an almost psychic or kind of, if you like, dreamlike or quite surreal aspect. And it was interesting to hear Joella there speaking about the connection maybe to somebody like uh, Robert Smithson. I think that's really interesting. We can connect Robert Smithson's work as well to the writer J.G. Ballard. And J.G. Ballard, in fact, also made a series of, of uh, books which were set in the south of France, most notably uh, something like Supercan, of course, this all happens in the 1970s and 1980s and, and, and or sorry, 1990s and much later. But the fact of the matter is there's also a kind of surrealism in The Bathers and the kind of surrealism in the late vision, kind of macabre uh, uh, vision of Cézanne, very exemplified in, in sort of tiered skull paintings he's make as well. And in The Bathers as well is a rather strange kind of uh, dream, if you like, I suppose, of a kind of a utopian modernism, a kind of a perfecting of... Man and nature, and actually, the the American British artist Orby Kitai, for instance, in his own work, uh, uh, which considered deeply the uh, legacy of modernity, uh, especially with, with regard to uh, the effects of the Holocaust, often wrote about the difficulty. Of remaking, if you like, modernism. Remaking Cezanne's bathers after the Holocaust, because of course, I think what the what the bathers really aspired to was really a kind of an epic vision, if you like, of a kind of a of a universal, uh, if you like, kind of if you like, uh, harmony or integration of uh, of the figures in the landscape. And I think, as you as said there, I think they're also highly reminiscent and sentimental too of his early life and with his friends, Emile. Uh, with his friends Emile Zola and others, when they did, when they swam and played amongst the rocks of 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 the South of France, and I think that's really persistent in the paintings. But the paintings themselves are bizarre in the extreme, um, in terms of the image and how they seek, I think, to also connect to a different kind of art history of Rubens and of and and and, and, of, and of that kind of period.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by Samantha Friedman, who's Associate curator in the Department of Drawings and Prints at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And uh, Samantha's one of the organising creators of the new exhibition Cézanne Drawing. And Samantha, I'm wondering, how are people responding to Cézanne Drawing? What impact are the, is, are the works having on, on on people who are now returning to, to museums?
5: Thanks so much for having me. And... Um I'll say that, you know, people seem to be really excited. I think it's lucky timing that the show has opened when the museum has been able to reopen at 100% capacity and people can come together and look in person. And I think that people whose eyes have been starved for art you know, seen in person and not over, you know, the screen uh, during the last year plus, I think are really rewarded by these works which are so subtle and so complex and really um, require close looking, which is very much our approach, um, that we looked closely at these works um, to understand them just as Cézanne himself, of course, looked so closely over protracted periods um, at his motifs.
0: And in terms of, I suppose, some of the works, well, maybe talk to us about some of the works and uh, what are the ones that that are getting the best response?
5: Well, I think, um, you know, the, the exhibition has nearly 300 works, uh, over 280 drawings, um, so there are quite a few to choose from to discuss, but I think, um, you know, the, it, there's two sides of it. There are the things that everybody, the subjects that everybody knows, uh, for on, the bathers, the still lifes, the, the wonderful landscapes, but here portrayed in a way that might be different from the kind of, um, dense, opaque, um the touch, the mark making in, in oil paint that people might be more used to seeing. And so people are really, I think, responding to this different materiality um, of watercolor made luminescent by the white paper showing through Cezanne's bold use of the paper's reserve um to illuminate the composition, um that that what he decided to draw or paint, um was that what he decided not to draw or paint was as important as what he decided um, to apply graphite or watercolor to. Um, But I think in addition to those very well-known motifs, I think there are some subjects which are surprising for people, some works that are surprising for people um, to see Cezanne doing on paper, in particular his study sheet drawings, in which he um, condenses multiple seemingly unrelated motifs onto a single sheet. And they're facing all different directions. Sometimes it's on both sides of the sheet. And these really show the artist in the act of thinking and really underscore the idea that these drawings are really objects, dimensional objects, facing different directions, um, and which Cézanne returned to again and again over time in a kind of an act of accretion. And so we see a very different side um, of the artist, and I think people are responding to that too.
0: And in terms of his, his legacy as an artist, how we is the inf- what's the what's the significance? Is it the impact he's had on writers and other artists and other creative souls, or is it is it the works themselves?
4: Well,
5: I think you know Cezanne's works have been um, you know more ink has been spilled on them than on many others from you know contemporaries or or near contemporaries like Rilke. Um, Virginia Woolf, you know, all the way through to, um, to contemporary artists working today. You know, I think Momo was very complicit for many years in that story about Cézanne as the father of us all, um, you know, influencing Matisse and Picasso, but it's important to remember that the thing that Picasso actually said about Cézanne that was his lesson uh, was Cézanne's anxiety not his definitiveness, not his mastery, but his embrace of doubt and uncertainty was actually what moved future generations of artists. And so I think, um, you know, that amazing thing that Picasso says about Cezanne is really a great message for reminding us that that kind of uh, paternalistic narrative maybe is, is um, not so relevant anymore. And it's actually that kind of postmodern sense of anxiety, uh, of uncertainty, of contingency um, that makes Cezanne's impact so long-standing.
0: And I think given that we're living through an age of anxiety and uncertainty, I think it speaks to us now more than ever. And I think our listeners would like nothing more than to be able to jump on a plane tomorrow and head off to New York City and go to the exhibition, Samantha. But we can't. But for all those who can uh, get to it, I'm sure they're in for an absolutely wonderful time. So thank you so much, Samantha, for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me. We're open until late September. So if things improve, maybe there's the hope for
0: that. Fingers crossed. Fingers absolutely crossed. Fabienne, it's interesting there what Samantha was saying about the works on paper. I know you've done so much research on that for your PhD and studying, I think, over 1,400 of his works on paper. And you do get uh, an insight into his working methods uh, from looking at these different things.
3: Absolutely. So it's really what Samantha said is that um, what those works on paper are offering us is this glimpse into his process and into his thinking, if you want to say. So on the one hand, you have those study sheets where you have all those different kinds of subjects that suddenly are in a dialogue and really interact with each other. You would often come across shows that focus on either still lives or landscapes or bathers. And in those works on paper, you really get everything together. So it's all about the connections and discovering how those things are related. And so on the one hand, you have those study sheets with sometimes up to seven, eight, nine different little sketches or drawings next to each other or intermingled even. And then on the other hand, you have, as Samantha said as well, the recto-verso relationship. So you would have him working on both sides of the paper. And then in addition, you also have those larger entities such as sketchbooks, where you would have up to 100 drawings united in one yeah, one single entity, but often that is something that Urella was actually already mentioning about his early success. So the the, um, the destiny <laughs> or the the sad tragedy tra- tragedy about his early success was also that dealers and collectors were becoming very interested even in those sketchier works. And so, even around 1900, you would already come across dealers fragmenting, dismantling those sketchbooks, his, uh, sketchbooks, and selling single Pages. So exhibitions such as the one at MoMA right now are really unique chances to get a better sense of how those works used to be together united in like one larger object. And you can also discover parts of their biographies of those um, yeah, object, objects um, that, um, that were then suddenly ending up in collections dispersed across the globe, basically.
0: And Eurala, do you think he deserves his title or his reputation as the father of modern art? So all these tributes that uh, were later paid to him by all of these great artists.
2: Yes, I think for the reasons that we've been discussing, I, I absolutely think so. Because I think he seemed to. He, I, I would describe him very much as a as a catalyst to both his art and his 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 courage, his guts, his determination to follow a path relentlessly it does raise all sorts of questions about you know um (laughs) the the, this whole relationship of our artists pursuing that at the cost of their nearest and dearest and all of that that's another issue but i i i do i do think so and I, i do think that he is an incredibly as i said earlier incredibly important artist for us Today, I think his influence just went across all kinds of disciplinary boundaries, um, and I think there's still so much to to learn from him. You know, this is a, a wonderful archive, and I just actually wanted to take this quick opportunity to say, um, Fabienne, your exhibition reconstructing Cézanne for me was one of the most wonderful pleasurable exhibitions i've probably ever seen on 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 suzanne it was absolutely wonderful thinking about his mastery with with paper and with the empty space and all of that so i just wanted to say that as well yeah
0: absolutely brilliant okay, thank you. uh and mark let's talk about some of the other uh paintings some of the other works uh some of the dark ones again because uh, you know because like when he used knives and brought knives in like there was a kind of a violent element in in some of them
1: Absolutely yeah. it's very interesting how Suzanne, I suppose I even think about things like posters you know like the Boston Academy of Arts and the reproductions of art really in the maybe in the 80s and 90s Suzanne becomes ubiquitous and we really understand the popularity of the landscapes. But of course, in the 1860s, early on his work, you're right there, Patrick, he uses a palette knife and some people have said he uses a palette knife because in some ways the the kind of visceral action, the materiality of slicing and applying the paint in this rather violent instrument and slathering across the, the canvas. This was his his, his his very early method he used, and in doing so, in some some people have made the comment that he, in some ways, he's he's joining in with some of the activities that even pictured in these early paintings. And these are pictures, one titled "Abduction." Um, they're, they're it's quite shocking. He also painted images of orgies and. And, and, and was very much, a, if you like, a, quite a quite a, a, an acidic and sarcastic. He made a painting uh, based upon uh, Manet's *Déjeuner* as well, which was slathered across the surface. And he, so very experimental. And I suppose you could say Camille Pazzaro uh, calms him down in some way, brings the lighter palette and. There's a kind of a, a, a almost a a sense of almost like an Eastern Zen-like quality to to some of these paintings where he looks at um, jazz de Buffon and these sort of spaces. But there's a violence and a, and, a, and a macabre uneasiness I think that runs through his work. In later works, the the image of the skull I think in in jazz de Buffon in his studio there are still three skulls that remain. And again, I think I refer them to these kind of stacked skulls and and very much aware of his own mortality. There's a kind of a there's a great darkness to a lot of the work too. Um, and,
0: and Mark, we're almost out of time. So a final word on his legacy, his impact. Uh, we've been exploring probably through the whole show, but uh, someone who, who deserves repeat viewings and there's always something different he's got to say to us. The, 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 the real legacy of
1: Cézanne from my point of view as an educator as well as for students, Cézanne uh, uh, tells them to go and look for themselves and to begin again and not to follow other leaders but to really uh, invent their own optic, as he calls it, and to uh, begin uh, a very personal and, and individual grammar. And to, and so the work is not so much a depiction of places or things, but very much uh, a language to express really kind of an inner reconciliation with the world around us.
0: Well, I think that's a very good message uh, uh, for us today. Uh, and I think has a wider application as well. So my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the life and work of Cézanne uh, to our listeners uh, in great colour tonight, Dr. Yorella Andrews, Dr. Fabienne Rupin, Marco Kelly, Samantha Friedman and Sarah Herring. That does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Susan Cattle, Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, a great show. We're bringing you the story of a castaway who found shelter among the Gaelic Irish after the failure of the Spanish Armada. We'll be investigating violence against women in the Irish Revolution and exploring the idea of Jesus as a revolutionary. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History History On News Talk.